Man, I've been looking for an MP3 of this uh, of the score, and I can't I can't find <laughs> one anywhere. I can do that for you if you want. Welcome back to the Back to the Movies podcast special here on filmnerds.com. I am your host Matt Scalisi and we are we're down to the last couple here on our uh, countdown of the top 50 films of 1983 and actually just we've been taking you through the top 10 here on the podcast series. And um, today we're going to be looking at Number two, and, and uh, not just number two at the box office, but actually the, the best picture winner of 1983 as well, Terms of Endearment from James L. Brooks. And uh, joining me to talk about this is a regular film nerds contributor and a guy who's done a couple of these Back to the Movies podcasts with me, Ben Flanagan. Ben, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming back. It's an honor to be invited back, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know what? I will say this, Ben. You... you I, I would say that you have at least gotten to participate in the best movie out of this top ten that I've done podcasts on. I, I think it's it's pretty clear to me, uh, you know, wh- whether this is my favorite movie of 83 or not, I'll sort of decide later and, and it's up for debate. But out of those top ten at the box office that year, it, it's been it's been pretty ugly, and, and it was nice to get a movie like this. So you would say you're in line with the Academy voters of 1983? Yeah, I would say I definitely agree with their decision to go with a lot of sort of no-name movies and then uh, Terms of Endearment as far as, you know, being really the only big box office hit that that registered at the Oscars that year. But let's um, – Let's let's just uh, set the stage, I guess, a little bit for this because you know, for people who who aren't aware, I guess, what a big deal this movie is. Obviously, it won Best Picture, but so it was basically the Oscar movie of of 1983 in the way that you that we've seen some other movies just kind of come in and so much momentum they just sweep everything. This thing picked up uh, Oscars in in many many categories, including uh, you know. Acting categories, director, screenplay, a little bit of everything. So, uh, but in addition to that, I guess what makes this a little bit of a rare bird is that it was also a huge box office success. It came out right at the end of November in '83, and it just kind of kept rolling. And, and um, you know, it was kind of this this uh, this movie that I, I guess from looking at the figures, it started off um, a little bit slow and, and just was one of those word of mouth movies that just kept pulling in. Uh, little by little every weekend and just didn't go away until finally it it uh, it was the second biggest hit of the year um, in front of a lot of big budget you know blockbuster star studded action movies and um, I, I, you know Ben I, as far as the the subject matter when we talk about that it's hard to think of another movie that's kind of a personal drama that would be the you know an equivalent hit i mean can you think of anything off the top of your head that- i'm trying just uh, of that period i guess i mean, well, I, I mean uh, ever really just since then that that was a movie that you could sort of say is this type you know almost this genre of movie that um that that turned into such a runaway box office hit well i think you'd have to refer back to 
James L. Brooks in 1997, As Good As It Gets, was pretty popular right. when it came out. And it sort of explores similar subject matter just in that it's a, it's a human dramedy, I guess. So you could call it this movie a family drama with hilarious moments. And I think you could say the same thing about as good as it gets with less hilarious moments. But I think that it kind of falls in line with that. But you could just go back four years earlier to the best picture winner, Kramer versus Kramer, which I think had some influence over Brooks. And this was a debut for James L. Brooks right. as a director. So now as a, as a film director, he'd obviously, right. he'd done a lot of TV stuff. Right. Yeah. And yeah. for, you know, I, I'm reading on box office mojo that terms of endearment had an $8 million budget and it walked away with, at least 108 million, and that's domestically. So it was a smash hit, especially back in the early 80s. So coming from a, uh, like you said, a filmmaker making his theatrical debut, and something that was ex- exploring such serious subject matter at the time, and not exactly what you would consider box office fodder. This movie was an enormous runaway surprise success, I guess. Looking back. And it's so it's so funny, Ben. And you know, we'll get into some of this as far as the story elements, I guess, later on. But uh, one of the things watching this movie that uh, that that sort of occurred to me is that it is a really funny movie. I mean, it is. I, I think it's safe to call this a comedy, at least at least partially a comedy, and uh, because it definitely doesn't take itself um, too seriously. I mean, it's very lighthearted for I would say the majority of the running time of the movie. And the fact that it's uh, that it's a, a comedy that so heavily features, at least in the second half of the movie, um, a, a cancer storyline, which is the least funny thing, you know, or one of the least funny things you can put in a movie. It's the it's the definition of drama. You know, it's almost the stereotype of melodrama, and they're able to sort of take that and find the the lighter elements of it, and and um, and without without having it weigh down the film too much, you look at the last few years, there's a lot of filmmakers trying to do that today. And people seem to call it a really original approach. You know, people seem to think that's so novel to, to go and do the, you know, mixed comedy and cancer in a, in a screenplay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're talking about someone who considers James L. Brooks, one of his personal and artistic heroes, Judd Apatow. He did that with funny people a couple of years ago where you had Adam Sandler as this guy who, uh, develops a blood disease, and there's that, another coming out later later right. in the year too. Yeah, fifty fifty, right? With uh, Seth Rogen and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah, you're, you're you're kind of treading the same water there. And it seems that the Hollywood Foreign Press had uh, as much difficulty classifying this film as either a comedy or a drama. I'm sure it, it actually ended up winning Best Motion Picture Drama, so it stayed out of the comedy musical category. But like you said, this movie is very funny, and it actually. It does make light of cancer. It, it, one of the film's funniest gags happens to be a cancer joke, and it's later in the movie at this New York City party that Deborah Winger is, attend- is attending. And the fact that James L. Brooks was able to do that and just win the hearts of so many people, and he did that by also – and I, I use this term in, a, in an affectionate way, but by manipulating the audience emotion- emotionally – Later in the movie, he's able to accomplish that as well. But he does that in, an, in a pretty large variety of ways, I would say, throughout this movie. It's not ju- he doesn't just play the cancer card and win the audience over. There's much more to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, this, this movie, this, I mean, it's, it's definitely that approach that it takes to sort of being this, this, um, 
this long term storyline that plays out over you know I, I guess it, it probably plays out over at least a decade. Yeah. Probably. I'm 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 not quite sure what the timeline is here, but it's um, you know it sort of plays out over the the 70s and 80s a little bit, and um, you know so so basically just to just to sort of recap it, I guess this what what we're what we're mostly given in this movie is it's kind of the the, the story of a lifelong relationship relationship between a mother and a daughter they're you know they're uh, they kind of have this unique relationship where they're almost as much friends as they are parent and child and um and you know i think i think when you when you see uh those two performances from Shirley MacLaine and Deborah Winger um it's it, it's just kind of blows you away a little bit that that you know really neither of them have I, I don't know to me as somebody who's a, a 2011 film film goer somebody who hasn't watched a lot of 80s movies um these are two names that I've that I've heard for years and I really haven't seen uh, this this might be the first time I'd seen either of them uh in a film uh, you know other than I've probably seen Shirley MacLaine doing one of those cameos where she's old Shirley MacLaine mm-hmm. but you know I've never really seen either of these actresses you know working in their prime uh and I I, I would venture to guess this is probably about the, the 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 tops you know the heights that they that they reached here uh and and MacLaine won the Oscar for it and I think Winger probably would have won had MacLaine not been in the same category as her sure I, you know from what I can gather it was a photo finish back in 1983 and it would be very difficult for me to choose between the two of them. I mean, if there could have been a tie any year in this category, it would have been that year for sure, for me anyway. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's the only way you could go with it. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't really put Shirley MacLaine. I mean, the only thing I might have done differently was put Shirley MacLaine as a supporting actress. But I think oh, that's no. probably not. I think they probably did it right. No, no, no. And let's let's sort of talk about why I think this is. Probably the more difficult performance, I guess, to um, to have here. McLean gets the, the the toughest role, the toughest assignment, I guess. I think that's probably I think that's probably fair. But yeah, yeah. go elaborate. Yeah, I think she's given an extremely difficult task here in playing this role because of the parallels it kind of presents to her as an actress facing the same crossroads as her character. Her line early on when they're at a dinner table or a lunch table is she is presented with this information from her daughter, Emma, that she's pregnant. And she sort of screams at her, why should I be happy about being a grandmother? Right. And you always hear about how challenging an actress's career gets as she ages, how unfair it kind of is that leading roles start to disappear for these actresses, no matter how great they were in their primes. And all you soon get are grandmother roles, so to speak. And Shirley MacLaine, I feel like she sort of reached that age, not quite her twilight, I guess you could say. She, she, she certainly isn't an elderly woman, even though she portrays a sort of young grandmother in this. But I think that, I mean, you have the case with a, you know, a film like The Wrestler, where you sort of have these parallel situations going on, where you have this actor portraying a character whose life sort of reflects his own. And I think that's kind of the case here with MacLaine. In terms of endearment, I'm not saying that she is as cold a personality as Aurora is in this movie. I just think that they're faced with similar obstacles 
uh, in terms of their age. So I, I really do think that that's, that that's kind of why I would kind of give the edge here to McClane because she is an authority in this movie. And she goes toe-to-toe with everybody she comes across, especially a dynamo like Jack Nicholson. But, I mean, Deborah Winger, that, that's not to take anything away from her because she is absolutely perfect. Yeah, they have some great back and forth too. And, yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting when you talk about Shirley MacLaine. You know, I, I, I think this is probably it, – it's got to be an early example of something that James L. Brooks has used a lot and that's something that, came, that became a lot more popular in the 80s and 90s after after this movie but uh, but this this kind of this idea of of a of a lead a female lead in a movie that's kind of the woman in her 50s who remains uh a romantic figure who we're we're it's kind of that that sex in the 50s you know type mm-hmm. of storyline that that James L Brooks has really come to embrace later in his career but i think this is this is probably a fairly early example of that well, and also don't forget that our friend Nancy Myers explores this too. And you might confuse some of her work with James L. Brooks. They're kind of one and the same these days. That's right. Yeah. Especially because you've got you know Diane Keaton and something's got to give, and Meryl right. Streep, and it's complicated. Very similar roles because there are these women who, I mean, really think about it. Who in Hollywood other than Meryl Streep right now? I wouldn't even consider Diane Keaton to be a part of this category anymore. At Meryl Streep's age and at Shirley MacLaine's. Back in 1983, who was who, who a female actress at their age who can open and carry a mainstream studio film like this? Yeah, Where- I mean, there's there's not many, and I think Shirley MacLaine still at this age, she was not far removed from being uh, kind almost a bit of a of a you know I, I wouldn't I don't know if you'd call her a uh, sex symbol, but she was. You know, in being there, she's definitely a uh, meant to be. She's played up as a as a sexy female character, which is all that was only seventy nine. So that's not too much uh, earlier than than this film. So I think you know she this was this was early enough in her career that that she could still get some comedy out of playing the uh, I don't want to be considered old thing, but um, but you know yeah, she definitely had just enough age that I think you can you can take a lot of what she's doing. Seriously, especially, you know, I, I say that she sort of plays up the the friendship aspect with with Deborah Winger's character, mm-hmm. but um, when she turns on the mom stuff, um, it really it really sort of becomes pretty powerful. And I, I think would you would you say it's safe to say that Shirley MacLaine's Oscar clip in this movie, if if there's if there's one, would be the "Give My Daughter the Shot" scene? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that's the one that played if they did clips in 1983. But there are a lot. I really do think that there are a lot because this movie is loaded with extended scenes. They're like 10-minute scenes that we get, um, and they're all so good. It kind of reminds me of the format of something like Inglorious Bastards where it's not as uh, – I don't know. It, that it's, it's very different, but it's similar in terms of how long the scenes are and how they're presented in an episodic format here by James L. Brooks. But you talked about – how Shirley MacLaine and her character sort of foreshadowed what we might see in James L. Brooks' movies. And I think that she does that in a different way, in a way that frustrates me as someone who's seen James L. Brooks. I've seen all of his movies but one, this movie I'll Do Anything with Nick Nolte. And there may or may not be a a female lead character who sort of possesses these same qualities. But I think that Aurora totally falls in line with – the rest of the Brooks characters, these privileged white women 
who fail to find any ultimate satisfaction or sort of refuse to believe that they ever will. And I think that the difference between McLean and Reese Witherspoon and How Do You Know and Helen Hunt in uh, As Good As It Gets and Holly Hunter in Broadcast News is I just buy McLean. The difference is McLean. And she has this wonderful dynamic between her and Jack Nicholson. I really don't think that Brooks has had uh, female characters, female leads who have had a foil like she did here. But the, these films, and with those characters specifically, other than McLean, they're just these indecisive, uh, poor me, uh, white women who just they, – they can't decide what it is they want. And it's just so frustrating. And by the end of each of those films, you're – even more frustrated than they are because they haven't made any sort of decision about uh, which direction they take once they reach those crossroads. And I think that Shirley McLean is the exception to that rule here in his first movie. He figured it out early on and he sort of lost it as he went along. Yeah. And you, you brought up Jack Nicholson and I think we'd be, we'd be remiss if we didn't start talking about him. If we went any further into the podcast without talking about him kind of in depth, but, uh, you know, I think it's interesting because you watch this movie and and uh, somebody somebody who uh, is is you know has lived most of their movie life in the in the nineties uh, in the two thousands. You know, this is Jack Nicholson. This is the yeah. this, this role. You watch this and you say, "Well, he's playing Jack Nicholson." But I think uh, you know, if looking at his looking at his filmography, I guess leading up to this, I think I think there were some indications that he. Um, you know, was was building towards this kind of comedic persona, mm-hmm. but I think I think it, it's probably it's probably fair to say that in 1983, Nicholson had not really become uh, a a parody of himself in the way mm-hmm. that he sort of later was. I mean, this this is a guy who, in the you know, in this in the 70s and 80s and an early 80s, I guess this was a serious dramatic actor. I mean, and he, you know, the 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 majority of his work was. Uh, dark stuff and intense stuff. I mean, we're talking about The Shining was just 1980, so mm-hmm. um, he's, he's not far removed from that. He's, uh, I think, this is really playing against type for him at this stage in his career, and I think it was probably a pretty smart and and interesting choice for him to go. Now, obviously, this this Garrett Breedlove became kind of the template for every character Jack Nicholson would play mm-hmm. for the rest of his career, almost, but. Uh, with with a few exceptions, obviously, but you know, I, I think it's this is one of those that if you have to try to watch it with fresh eyes, and you have to try to uh, to see things that look cliche as and understand that that they weren't cliche yet in this movie, and that he was sort of inventing that that character that he would use over and over again. I think that's a great point, Matt, and I just think that this is precisely what a movie star should do in a comedy. They should dominate the screen whenever they're on there, but not sacrifice the narrative of the film. They, they, he totally contributes to the story here and plays off of Aurora just perfectly. He's the, he, like I said before, he's the perfect foil to her. And their, their interactions just totally remind me of just great screwball comedy from back in the day. Yeah, and, and it's funny, Ben, because you know James L. Brooks actually wrote this character – for the movie, this was not, you know, uh, terms of endearments based on a novel, and and the Garrett Breedlove character was not in the novel. James L. Brooks specifically wrote it uh, into the screenplay. He felt like it needed to be there, and um, right. and he actually didn't even write it with Nicholson in mind. But 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think it totally brings something uh, that this movie desperately needs. I think it would be so much uh, darker and it would be, it would feel so much less balanced if he wasn't there. Look, back in 1984, spring of 1984, I would have felt really sorry for Charles Durning, Sam Shepard, Rip Torn, and John Lithgow, who's also nominated for this film. But that, that that's basically his competition. They did not stand a chance and might not have even attended the Oscar ceremony that year. <laughs> Nicholson, look, he had he had it from his first appearance on screen. James L. Brooks gave this guy wide open, uncontested layups, and he just slam dunked them just for fun. Seriously. I mean, this guy is having a ball on screen. And like you said, he's sort of in a way out of his comfort zone in that he's not doing a straight drama where he just has to totally immerse himself and sort of lose his mind like he did in The Shining and like he might have done in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And he's obviously just getting comfortable here. And I, you, you'll never find a more comfortable movie star on screen than Jack Nicholson. And this might be the best example of that. Yeah, and, and you mentioned uh, – I, I want to talk about – yeah, obviously Nicholson won Best Supporting Actor that year. Um, but as you mentioned, John Lithgow, who has a nice little role in this movie, uh, was nominated. And I, actually it's a little surprising because it's it's a very subtle part and it doesn't stick out to you, especially not in the way that uh, that Jeff Daniels' role sticks out. I mean I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. What, do, what, what are your feelings about – uh, first of all, let, let's talk about Lithgow a little bit, but also the the Daniels performance and and did he did he deserve a little bit of love too? Well, I'll start with Daniels, and you really sort of forget how good Jeff Daniels is at playing an incredible asshole, right? Because yeah. he's so he's so likable. He is in pretty much most of what he does. But I mean, if you look at some of his work, if you look at this, and you look at at least one half of what he's doing in Purple Rose of Cairo, and then in the Squid and the Whale from just a few years ago, he can go toe to toe with anybody when it comes to playing just completely unappealing men who are completely selfish and care nothing about other people if it means compromising his own personal agenda. But I, I think I thought he was just perfectly smarmy in all the right ways here. But what is challenging about his performance and about the job he had to do here is by the end he had to come across as likable and as somebody that just happened to be part of your family and that you had to live with and that you had to put up spending time in the same room with and i think and, he really did i think he i think he succeeded because uh you know especially those in those in those last few scenes mm-hmm. with deborah winger um uh, you know gosh you can't i mean because I, I think at the end of the day we sort of realize he he's not he's really not a bad guy i think he's just a terrible husband and father mm-hmm. but he's but he's not a bad guy overall you know no, and we come to find out that his true vice is that he is a college professor who whose weakness is you know these these young students, these female students that he has, and you know he he has a penchant to hit on them, obviously, we see him doing that, we see Deborah Winger find him uh, doing that, and it kind of made me wonder since we're we're never really let in on what Deborah Winger's own professional aspirations are. It made me wonder, was she one of these college students of his that he hit on that he eventually married? I don't know that it ever explicitly says that or what she was doing before they got married because we sort of jump right into their storyline the night before they're going to get married and Aurora has her objections to it. But um, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think he pulls it off and by the end, you know he he's a part of that family. Unfortunately, even though 
he's sort of looking for a way out uh, from the start of the movie. And Lithgow, on the other hand, is is the it, it's kind of <laughs> weird because if Daniels is playing the the smarmy and slightly unlikable mm-hmm. husband, Lithgow has to play <laughs> the always uh, and perfectly likable adulterer basically <laughs> right. he's the most likable adulterer yeah. in film history probably <laughs> he's a hilarious character though and while i was watching this movie when i hear some of these one-liners and see some of these characters it's clear to me that james l brooks is influenced by woody allen and i think that woody allen might have seen this and might have even been influenced for maybe some of his 80s comedies and dramedies you know like Hannah and her sisters I mean there's there are characters in that like Elliot and Hannah and her sisters kind of reminds me he's kind of a mix between the John Lithgow and uh Jeff Daniels characters here in some ways I just think that they share some characteristics but I think Lithgow's hilarious I mean he has so many great lines and you totally pull for him in their relationship I mean his his plight at home sounds Simple, but for a married man at his age, when he talks about his <laughs> wife's bulging discs right. and how that's affecting their sex life, it's just hilarious. And you, you know, you get him, you know, sort of hunched in the, uh, his laundry room later when he's trying to make a phone call to Deborah Winger, and you can't hear him because the dryer or the washing machine is too loud. And you hear him say, "I think there's a calmer cycle coming." <laughs> <laughs> so they can talk, uh, but he's he's a great character, and he it's a, it's a well deserved nomination. But I mean, really, why not nominate all three of these guys because they're all equally good? And and one other I want to throw in there too, who uh, I think his his role was just a little too small for that kind of consideration. But Danny DeVito is really funny in this movie. Yeah, and uh, there he's he's basically he's this little lecherous. He's he's one of this group of sort of hangers on that just yeah. has uh, they appear to just have dinner with aurora every so often and kind of like worship at her feet basically mm-hmm. but uh danny devito is kind of the the strangest one of them and uh there's there's a scene early on where she she has everybody over and uh danny devito's uh he, he's just kind of looking off in in this uh kind of in the direction of nothing and uh he's just looking into the living room uh and and i think I think somebody asked him basically, you know, she's she's not even there. And uh <laughs> right. says, She'll be back. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> He's fantastic. He really is. Yeah. And it in in it, it was great too, towards the end of the film, where uh they're in the backyard of Aurora's house and you see Jack Nicholson just sort of walk by Danny DeVito, whose name is Vernon in this, and yeah. they just sort of acknowledge each other. And that's just a nice little moment if you're a fan of One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest because they were in they were in that hospital right. together. He was Martini uh, to McMurphy there, Jack Nicholson's McMurphy. But anyway, you know, I totally agree. There's that other scene at the dinner table where all of her suitors are gathered around her, and I think it's her birthday. And she, you know, one guy gives her a present or says something about her, and she gives him this very, very awkward kiss on the mouth. And she turns to Danny DeVito, who's clearly just seething in his own way and jealousy. And she says, do you want to kiss Vernon? <laughs> and she's like, yes, I do. But these guys, yeah, they kind of have this uh, kind of goofy take a number right. sort of uh, demeanor where it's like, you know, you're next in line. And, you know, they'll marry her. They'll marry her at the drop of a hat. They're just right. kind of at that age where they want that stability. And this sort of rang, uh, you know, hit home with me because – um, my grandmother on my father's side sort of ha- was in that situation. She was a, a you know a single mother and grandmother, and she she played a great you know a large part in raising us as children. And we would spend a lot of time over at her house, and you know she would have 
uh, you know, a couple of guys who would be coming over just to hang out. And I didn't understand it back then, <laughs> obviously. But I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, just kind of looking back on it, this is exactly um, what would, you know, this was her experience too. And I'm sure a lot of women at that age go through it and it probably torments them too. I would imagine, you know, they just kind of have to put up with these men who still have these uh, considerable drives at that right. age. <laughs> um, yeah, I want to um, uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, getting getting back to the um, less comedic stuff in it because one of the one of the big issues, I guess, going back and reading the critical response to this movie, I mean, it, it was almost unanimously positive, but there were a couple of exceptions, and uh, and and basically the anybody who had a gripe with this movie, it seemed to to stem from. Uh, I guess what we'd call the cancer twist in the mm-hmm. plot, because really we do get a, a really significant bit of the way through this movie before the cancer, uh, before Deborah Winger's cancer becomes a factor in the story, and it seems to come out of nowhere. Um, and critics of the movie have said basically that it feels um, a little manipulative, and it and it feels like um, you know essentially that you you could you could take any story where there wasn't particularly a lot happening at a given moment and throw cancer in there suddenly. And, and you've got a drama now. And, um, you know, uh, Brooks defended the move obviously. And, and, um, and Roger Ebert was completely, uh, okay with it. And Roger, Roger Ebert was gushing about this movie in 83 and, and said, mm-hmm. essentially his feelings on it was that that's how, you know, if this is a movie that's sort of a slice of life movie, that that's how cancer comes. It just, uh, it does come out of nowhere and, and without, uh, you know, conveniently fitting into the story in any way. So, uh, I don't know. What, what do you feel about the, the way that story develops and, and, uh, and you know, that, that sort of sudden twist that it takes. Well, I read that same Roger Ebert review and I thought he made a great point about the feel of this movie. And the, the exact quote from his review was terms of endearment feels as much like life as any movie I can think of. And I totally agree with that. And when I was watching this, I was reminded of that line in Super 8, which came out recently, where this idea certainly did not originate. It's just the last movie that I saw that addressed the same theme. But one of the characters in it says, bad things happen. And I don't know where something like God might play a role in terms of endearment, and we we have a friend, obviously our colleague uh, and friend Ben Stark. He always talks about uh, an issue he has with some movies are when the filmmakers are cruel to the characters, uh, where it might not serve the purpose of telling the story they initially you know set out to tell. And when you have a character like Deborah Wingers here, who is so um, jovial, and she's someone who has embraced her life, and even when she is hit with left turns. And painful obstacles, she manages to keep a pretty good attitude. And so you kind of question the decision of James L. Brooks and whoever is sort of the overseer of the universe that he's created here. It's you wonder why would you punish this character? Uh, because she's so she's such a good person. It seems she's extremely flawed, and she'd be the first person to acknowledge that. But she's good to her kids. She's good to her mother, and she's good to most of the people who do and do not slight her. Um, and, you know, one of the conclusions that I sort of came to um, came after 
look and you know I know I know we're we're sort of in the business here of spoiling these movies. We're going in depth. Yeah, here. I mean we're the, um, at, at this point we're we're pretty we're pretty into it now, so I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah. Well, she she gets terminally ill, right, and she eventually passes away at the very end of the movie. And there's a quote that Shirley MacLaine has that says, "Somehow I thought that when she finally went, it would be a relief." And I sort of wondered there after she's had this conversation with Flap, her husband. Jeff Daniels, where she's basically said, you don't need to take care of the kids. You can go off and basically live your single life and live with your mistress here. And my question is, is it a relief for Jeff Daniels now that he's single? They decided that he wouldn't take care of the kids, so now he's a bachelor again with no kids. Or does he sort of share Aurora's sentiment where they thought that it might be a relief for different reasons? And so I think that her death and her illness – is meant to sort of give these characters something greater to think about in terms of how they're living their lives and how they're affecting others. And it's incredibly sad, but in a way you sort of look at her as kind of a martyr for these characters. And I think it does affect the, uh, it, it does obviously give us some revealing character moments for the other characters. But I do think uh, you know, when we when we talk about that idea of being cruel to a character, I think probably a lot of that that uh, what comes from behind that comment is that uh, a plot twist not allowing a character to um, to to remain themselves for the for the rest of the story, and I I don't think that's what happens here. In, you know, in a way, basically depriving that character of their identity by doing something terrible to them, it, I, I think is the the idea behind that, at least partly, I, I think the way that Deborah Winger's character um, deals with her cancer and succumbs to it is completely in step with the character that's established uh, for the rest of the movie. And I, I think almost the, the the cancer as a plot device almost reaffirms her character as much as it does anybody else's. And I think especially uh, that's the case when with, with how she deals with Flap, uh, first of all, which is in a very gracious way. You know, she she really uh, makes her peace with him, and uh, and she she does that thing that she is for the whole movie, which is that you know she's got plenty of reasons to resent him, but she's not the kind of person that um, that seems to hold grudges and be angry about things for too long and. Um, you know, so she she seems to sort of prefer that she just resolves any issues she has with Flap, and then really the scene that Deborah Winger gets with her two sons, uh, or I guess it's the two older sons, really. Um, you know, I mean, it's just a brutal yeah. scene to watch, but it's it's um, it's perfectly in step with her character. I think she actually even, uh, you know, she actually slaps her older son during that scene. So she's, I mean, she's not at well, all compromising who she's been for the whole movie. I mean, even right there at the very end, she's, uh, she's not taking crap from the kid. And well, she, yeah, she, around. she sort of puts him in his place, but right. it's Shirley, Shirley McLean slaps him outside of the hospital, uh, when he makes uh, a snide comment. You're right. But she, she does sort of at least straighten oh, yeah. a little bit on something. Basically he says something and she sort of says, you know, you're gonna you're gonna wish that you were nice to me, basically. Right. Well, he sort of yeah. confronts her about how he's been embarrassed by her right. and embarrassed by uh, her marriage 
with his dad uh, for his entire life. Because, I mean, think about it. You see him as a young child and how he had to go sit out on the front porch when they were having sex that was so loud that it embarrassed him and he had to get out of the house or when uh, he and his brother leave the house when they're fighting too because he says, I didn't want anybody to know that I lived there. And so he's obviously a very troubled young kid who has uh, been deeply and emotionally affected by uh, the, the conflict between Flap and Emma to where he's even holding that against her on her deathbed. And he's somebody who, who may not understand the magnitude of what's happening in front of him. And only shortly after that, once he's been slapped and once Shirley MacLaine has told him, you're not going to talk about my daughter like that, uh, he, he finally sort of lets go and has his emotional moment. And by the way, uh, Shirley MacLaine's moment there that you talk about is, is so is so interestingly played, too. Uh, I, I think everything towards the end of that movie is so surprising because there there are a bunch of moments that I think you would call sort of stock moments in a uh, in a movie about where in which a, a character is dying of an illness. You know, you have the deathbed scenes where she's saying goodbye to her children, and you have the um, scene where uh, the, you know you might even you might even have other examples of a scene where a grandmother's straightening out the kid like that. Mm. But I think it's how they deal with it you know the specifics and the choices that the actors make in those scenes are so um unique and they make so much more sense than a lot of the more melodramatic um more ham-handed films and i mean mclean in that moment for one she doesn't really get mad at him you know she mm. she almost slaps him um out of you know his funk yeah yeah she she's almost doing it for his sake to yeah. wake him up a little bit and make him realize what he's doing but she's you know she almost immediately speaks to him sort of nicely and says look you know i'm i'm not mad at you i'm just letting you know that we're not going to be saying things like that right yeah and his comment is just uh such a childish thing and he obviously he's a child and he would say something like that but that slap is sort of what it's sort of a transition. It's a it's a it's a moment of growth for him, where he sort of is faced with uh, watching his mother die, essentially, and having to face that at such a young age. And I mean, he's having to become a man, and in certain ways, uh, this early in his life. So I think it's an incredibly powerful moment. And let's let's if you if you don't mind, let's talk about the kids in this movie. Yeah, definitely. Just a second. And the actors that I'm referring to are Huckleberry Fox, Troy Bishop, and Shane Serwin. They play uh, the older br- – there are two actors that play the older brother, one who's a younger actor, one who goes out on the front porch towards the beginning and is moving with them early on. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously the, the older actor who plays him who gets slapped. And then you have the younger brother who we see later who's just a heartbreaking character because he loves his mother yeah. so much. Um but is it me, Matt, or were the 70s and 80s some sort of child acting renaissance? Because, I mean, if you think about movies like The Bad News Bears, Kramer vs. Kramer, Close Encounters, E.T., Cinema Paradiso, Empire of the Sun, Hope and Glory, and then something like The Goonies along with this. I mean, good lord, they were so good back then. And not to bring this up, uh, not to bring this back up so soon, this is the last time I'll do it, I promise, but I feel like Super 8 almost reached back into that era mm-hmm. and plucked its cast. And honestly, you, you can't you, you see more naturalism among these child actors in those days than you do from most adults now, especially comedic actors. I mean kids' timing back then was impeccable. 
And today it's just a horror show. And nowadays it's all too precocious. It's self-aware. Mm-hmm. And kids talk about their careers in interviews. I mean it's sickening. I feel like the only way to cast a kid in a movie now is if he's too young, he or she is too young to know what they're doing or where they are. They're totally out of the situation and disoriented, and they're just being told what to do by an adult, and they don't even know a camera is there. Or if they're just not serious about acting and never plan to do it again after they do this movie. Well, I don't think we see – I don't think the bad kid performances we see today come from kids who don't think they have a career. I think they uh, – very much plan to have a career. Oh, yeah. I think that's part of the problem. Absolutely. Um, I, I think, I think, um, you know, it's, it's real interesting that you brought up super eight Ben, because for one, those are a bunch of kids who are not career actors and they mm-hmm. were sort of plucked from, uh, obscurity on purpose. JJ Abrams and, and Steven Spielberg made sure that they did not go get a bunch of, uh, you know, and, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to, to uh, nitpick on anybody, but you know, a, a bunch of kids like, uh, well, I guess like you would like you would typically see these sort of stock kids who hang around and they're they're the kid in everything for three or four years, and then they're kids on the way. Disney Channel or right. something. Yeah, and and now you know, but 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 I think I think probably a big issue, a big difference between then and now. Not only is it that the kids are are, are being trained today in a way that probably goes against um, creating a good film performance, a good serious film performance, because they're, they're being trained to get work. And you get work as a kid actor on Nickelodeon or the Disney Channel or commercials. So they're not really being trained to be uh, you know, Stanislavskian actors or anything. Um, but I, I think part of it, too, is the way that directors work with kids. And, you know, like obviously not being somebody who's in the film industry, I can't really speak to whether changes in rules and, and the way that child actors are, are you know, are handled. Um, I, I don't know if that's had anything to do with it. I do know that um, since, since we're talking about Super 8 as a modern day example of something that worked, uh, I was listening to an interview yesterday with J.J. Abrams, and he was talking about trying to get a really sincere moment out of the kids. And actually he's talking about the, the, um, uh, one of the, one of the scenes around the, the train crash sequence. And, um, and he talked to Rob Reiner who directed stand by me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the, what Rob Reiner told him was that when he was having trouble getting the kids to give him some genuine emotion, that, he got angry at them and he yelled at them and treated them like he would any adult who wasn't doing their job as an actor. And basically, um, almost in a manipulative way, says, look, you're wasting everyone's time here. Uh, we're all here trying to do our jobs and you're not you're not giving us what you're supposed to be giving us. And, you know, it's it's you know, yeah, it's manipulative. But I think that's probably part of the part of the craft of acting is oh, a director absolutely. is supposed to be messing with the head of an actor. Um, and at, you know, at the end of it all, I'm sure it's all okay, but it's, uh, (laughs) but, uh, but anyways, that's, Abram said that that's something that he heard and that's something that he did and it worked for him. I I think it worked for him. And I wonder if that's, if that's not something that gets done as often, especially with these, um, kids stars who might actually have some sway, who might actually have an agent who is out there, um, taking care of them and making sure that the directors aren't mean to them on set. Um, you know. I imagine there weren't as many of those sort of kid agents 
in the 70s and 80s. No, absolutely. It's a totally pampered and controlled environment now where if another director who wasn't J.J. Abrams or Steven Spielberg did that, there would probably be a lawsuit on their hands. But, I mean, if you look at the kid here who plays Tommy, the older the older Tommy in terms of endearment, I mean, obviously this kid was not, from what I could tell anyway based on this performance, he was not one of those child stars who was pampered by studios. I mean, he, and he they weren't afraid to make him look like a normal kid and let him act like a normal kid. I mean, he had a bad haircut. You know, he wore regular clothes. If you, I mean, he, he whined at the grocery store, in the grocery store line, like a normal kid would whine. So, <clears throat> I mean, honestly, I mean, I, I, this, is, this is a child like I knew children when I was growing up, how I probably was in a grocery store line. So it's just so refreshing to look back at an era when child acting just was not the worst possible thing that you can find in movies. <laughs> I love the grocery store scene, by the way, too. And it's, it's, uh, it's a great Deborah Winger scene as well, because she's, um, you know, there, there's the, there's the moment where obviously she's, she's basically, she's bought, she's bought more food than she has money to buy mm -hmm. and she's being forced to put some stuff back. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I love the, the moment that she gets another candy bar for the other kid. Yeah. Uh, just sort of defiantly, even though she do, she knows she already doesn't have enough money. Right, and it's her her older son says, just I mean the little shit that he is. He says you don't have enough money. Yeah, in front of everybody. <laughs> I mean the grocery store scene is one of the most painfully awkward scenes I have ever seen. And look, I've never been in that situation. Yeah, before. that's a nightmare. Yeah, that's like but, a domestic yeah. nightmare. Yeah, but there's something about it that I could totally identify with. I mean, when the younger kid hands back the candy bar to his mom and says, I don't need it. That is as truthful a moment as James L. Brooks or anyone else has put on film. It's a beautiful moment. Yeah. It's uh, I, I think that, that move, that, that scene overall, and then you have sort of, um, you know, you have Lithgow stepping in and, and giving <laughs> us a nice moment, but it's overall, that's, that's a good indicator of the overall tone of the, of the movie. You know, it's, it's, um, it's taking some things that could be really painful and, and dark about life. And it's, uh, you know, it, because of the characters who are dealing with it, you know, they find a way to sort of get through it and they move on with their lives. And, and, um, you know, I, I think, I think that, that really, uh, that that's a very indicative scene for the entire movie. That's what you have to do though. I mean, when you're faced with those situations in real life, you have to get through it. I it's mean, not the end of the story. Yeah. Yeah. You exactly. The, yeah. You know, the, the, in a film, it could be the end of the story. It could be the end of a character, and we might not ever see them again. And they're just faced with that forever. But you actually have to find your way out of the situation. And whether you do that through wit, humor, or just quick thinking, you get yourself out of it. And again, it goes back to that Ebert quote: "It feels as much like life as any movie that I can think of." But I want to ask you a question, Matt. <coughs> you and I are both married, so I think that we kind of had a, have a good idea at least so far of the different types of sacrifices that we have to make for our spouses and vice versa. But you have reached another layer altogether in that you're a father. And I would imagine that without exception, 100% of your decision-making hinges on how it affects your children. And at times in this film, the kids are simply background noise and are sometimes just neglected outright by these parents. Could you just sort of talk a little bit about how parents might view this film and these characters' behavior in it. Yeah, I mean, I guess, um, I guess that does color my um, perception of these characters. In that, 
even though I really like, uh, even though I really like Emma, um, I, I view her as kind of an immature character overall. And I, I don't, I, I think she's, she's in ways I see her as mis, just as misguided as Flap is in a way. Um, I think, I think Emma makes a lot of bad decisions and I think, um, we're not meant to just be, I think she's certainly a sympathetic character, but I think we're not meant to be just totally, uh, in agreement with her and she's not supposed to be a, uh, a flawless hero. Um, you know, uh, I think you've, you've already, you've already delved into a little bit, sort of the, the, um, you know, the future of pain and, and damage that these kids probably have. And, you know, I think that is, I think it's at least acknowledged uh, enough by Brooks that I think he he takes that element of it seriously. I don't think he dwells on it, but I think he takes that, uh, he, he, he does not pretend that these kids just won't be affected by the way that their parents lived. And, um, you know, I, I think it's there. I think I think it's at least in the background and, and it's intentionally shown to us a few times. But, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that these are characters, Emma, Emma and Flap are characters that um, are self-centered. And, you know, there's, in, in a way, um, look, looking at another movie from earlier in this, uh, in this series, looking at The Big Chill, um, you know, that, that's sort of the, the definitive baby boomer generation movie. And I think Emma's a little bit of a baby boomer in that, uh, she fits that profile of being um, more concerned with her own personal gratification than with uh, stuff around her. And I, I don't just mean sexually, although that's a big part of Emma's character. Uh, and this is, a, at times, this is a very um, sexually graphic movie, at least yeah. as far as the dialogue goes. It's not really oh, yeah. visually graphic, but it's, uh, I mean, very, very frank in how they discuss their sex lives in this movie. Oh, Matt, Matt, only in the eighties could a PG rated movie and arguably yeah, there was, look, there family was just film, else they could, could they, could they get away with a line? Like you just made me wet. Right. I mean, that's that, uh, that's shocking to hear even now in a movie. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I don't think you hear characters talk that way in mainstream, um, films like this. And this is a very, mainstream compatible movie. I mean, this was, this was a, this was a hundred million dollar movie, which was the equivalent of something like a $225 million movie. today. One of of the first lines in the movie is when Aurora is with her gentleman callers. And one of them says, the guy who's not Danny DeVito says, why don't you just face up to the fact that you have certain biological needs? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's played for laughs. I think some of it's, I think some of it's played just as matter of factly um, as a part of these characters' lives, but I think that's sort of who they are. They're, um, you know, I, I think, and it, and I think again, I, I think it's all intentional, which is why it doesn't bother me as much. I think Brooks is just portraying a very realistic person. You know, Aurora, I think, is much more conscious of how things affect children, and that's her uh, as a character generationally being different from Emma. Aurora is very concerned about her children. In fact, the opening shot of the movie Mm -hmm. is about how Aurora basically could give a crap about her husband. If she Mm -hmm. hears that baby make a peep, she's going to run in there and make sure she's okay. 
And I don't think that Emma would be quite that way at all with her children. And I think it's probably just um, whether it's a generational difference or it's, you know, it's just kind of who she is. And I think she cares about her kids, but I think she doesn't really know how to take care, how to fully sacrifice herself to take care of somebody else. And it's probably um, part of the reason why their marriage falls apart like it does is because as much as Flap doesn't really care about uh, he doesn't always think about Emma. I think Emma is not really always thinking about Flap as well. Right. And you talk about Aurora and how she wants to take care of her kids. But to me, it's almost like she's more comfortable when her child is uncomfortable because, I mean, what we see first <coughs> is her, you know, you see this baby lying peacefully in, in a deep sleep and she just sort of nudges the baby into right. a, into a fit of crying, and that's sort of what she does throughout the movie. She just sort of continues to poke and prod at the Deborah Winger character by, you know, very not always subtly. I mean, sometimes she says it outright, where she just completely does not approve of Flap, you know, and the decisions that Deborah Winger is making. Even when Deborah Winger assures her she's perfectly happy, she has to give she has to make some comment that sort of pushes her out of that comfort zone that she was in. And that's out of concern, I think, and not out of sure. selfishness uh, on on her part. But, I, you know, but yeah, I mean, as, as far as the, the parental element, I mean, I, I try not to really judge anybody else's parenting until, until I get my kid, you know, to adulthood without, uh, without <laughs> any arrests or anything. So, well, you know, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really anybody who can make judgments on a, on a character's parent. Oh yeah. But I think, Uh, I think she, I think, yeah. I mean, watching this as a parent, you do, I think most parents would probably watch this and go, gosh, I can't believe they're, uh, you know, that they're just sort of, um, you know, rampantly doing whatever they please basically mm -hmm. in the middle of the day and, and sending the kids outside when they do it. Right. Well, I also think that some parents will watch this movie and say, yep, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, like when she's outside of the grocery store and she's yelling at her kid to go to the car and just keeps yelling and yelling and yelling, <laughs> go to the car, go to the car. You Completely know? unashamed that yeah. she's just screaming at him in front of, right. in front of a she's, stranger. Yeah. yeah, she's humiliated the child and she's humiliated herself. But as a parent at that point, it's just like – and look, I'm not a parent, but you can just imagine that she's thinking, I don't care. Right. You know, yeah. Like try, try, try walking in my shoes for half an hour before you judge what I just did to this child. Right. You know? Yeah. No, I, I think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, again, I think it's, um, I think it's just another, um, instance of authenticity that Brooks put in this movie that, um, you know, if a character is too perfect and too much of a martyr, um, uh, I think it's tougher to buy them, you know? Yeah, absolutely, and I, I was just also curious um, to know whether Francesca watched this with you, and uh, you know, I wanted to know like what her thoughts were of you know the mother and how she treated those kids. Well, Francesca didn't watch it with me, but she had seen it before, and um, and she was sort of giving me a little bit of a, a running commentary as I watched it with my headphones on at the <laughs> beach. And uh, yeah, by the way, I, I watched this movie. Uh, th- this is how I spent one of my days at the beach on a on a family vacation was was watching Terms of Endearment in the beach house. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think Francesca, you know, I, I hate to speak for her, but I think I know her opinion on the movie, which is she's um, 
she she is uh, deeply moved by this movie, and it it hits all the the buttons on on Francesca, who is somebody who is, um, you know, I think Francesca is a very thoughtful movie watcher, but I think she, I, I think our, her her emotional buttons are pressed a little bit more uh, easily than mine. She's got a little bit more of a hair trigger when it comes to that. And, um, you know, I, it, this movie definitely has that effect on her and, and, you know, it really, it does on me too. I'm not going to pretend I wasn't emotionally affected by the movie. It was, it's a very, um, it's a very powerful movie and it, it, uh, you know, I think every scene works exactly how Brooks was trying to make it work. And he, he really has admitted too when he says, yeah, I, I think he took some of that criticism as, as the movie being manipulative. And he says, uh, he has a quote out there that's sort of the equivalent of if you if you mean to say it's manipulative in that it makes people feel the emotions I was trying to make them feel, then I agree with that. Yeah, I, yeah. Like I said before, manipulation is not always a bad thing. That's what you're supposed to right. do as a filmmaker. You're supposed to influence emotion. You're supposed to, or, or at least you know, um, encourage emotion from people who are watching your film and. I think that this is probably one of the, the best examples of how you can do that. Um, and emotion is is the key word here because if you don't have an emotional reaction to this movie, then you're uh, you're soulless, yeah, honestly, or you're a robot. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, I think that this was, uh, and we, we shouldn't, you know, gauge how we feel about these films, uh, even in retrospect, on how many Oscars they won, but. I think that this is a great film, and you know, had I been around in 1983, this is just a year before I was born. But had I, you know, paid attention like I do now, I would have been happy that this movie won Best Picture. And I don't know right now what it was up against. I mean, I can well, I can, I can look take at you that. Through. It would actually it it was up against. Um, first of all, it was up against two other movies that were in the top 50 that I've that I've done reviews for. So you can go <coughs> check that on the blog. It was up against The Big Chill and uh, The Right Stuff. Mm-hmm. Which uh, the right stuff was considerably further down down the list, so it, it, it was not a big hit, uh, and it was also up against two uh, sort of art house films that were not in the top fifty. Um, uh, this say uh, this film, Tender Mercies, that people sure. probably remember because of the uh, Best Actor award. Going. No, I've seen Tender Mercies. It's yeah. a great movie. Yeah, with uh, Robert Duvall won won Best Actor in nineteen eighty three for that movie, and I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm going to probably end up watching that movie pretty soon here and uh, maybe doing a little supplement later on uh, this summer to the series. But the other uh, nominee that year was a film called The Dresser, which was a Peter Yates movie. I think it was actually an adaptation of a play, but uh, it's it's kind of an, an old t- – takes place kind of uh, in, in the world of, of theater, you know, uh, basically stage, stage acting essentially. So uh, Albert, Albert Finney was in that. So it was, you know – there was definitely it was an understated group of movies other than you know the big chill was kind of a um i, I guess you could call that the the um the uh, other than other than the fact that terms of endearment was in there the big chill was kind of the mainstream poppy film of that group and then you know the right stuff was at least a reasonably popular um kind of epic feeling big budget mm-hmm. movie well look i'm not a baby boomer so i i don't have the just completely Unabashed love for the Big Chill. Oh, I hate like it. A lot of the I, right. I, I, I remember your fan. review. I remember your review. But there are a lot of people who really like that movie and love its soundtrack. They seem to associate, uh, yeah. you know, 
what what they felt were positive attributes about the film more so uh, because of the soundtrack than the actual film. But um, look, in terms of endearment, it, you know, regardless of what happens in the end, it is a crowd pleaser, and I think that most people <clears throat> by the end of the movie, when those credits hit, they're all thinking that was the best movie of the year. That was just an experience that I'm going to remember. It's, it's something that I would be willing to see again in the theater and watch at home with uh, my family. It's something that I would recommend to my family that they watch because there are so many things that reminded me of myself and reminded me of my family members. So it, it just does not surprise me one iota that this movie was financially successful, critically successful, and that it brought home five Oscars. It, it deserved all of them. Yeah. I definitely agree, and uh, you know, for for anybody who's uh, a big movie buff, and I'm sure you are if you listen to this podcast, probably. But um, you know, Terms of Endearment is one of those movies that uh, I, I think it's probably hanging around as one of those unchecked tick boxes on a lot of people's lists. Mm-hmm. I would highly encourage you to go and and check that one out if if it's one of those remaining gems that you haven't seen but feel like you should. Uh, it is it's not one that that you will uh that you will think is is unworthy of your time it's it's a uh, you know it's a, i i think i think overall the 80s were a pretty good decade for the best picture award and um and terms of endearment is definitely would be in my running for the best of all of those best picture winners from the from the 80s. Well, can I quickly just go through a few moments and lines that I just thought were brilliant that I yeah. think you recognize? <clears throat> and I'll try and fit through these, but the biological needs quote at the beginning I thought was brilliant. I thought uh, Shirley MacLaine had a great line um, early on, and we talk about what kind of mother she was to Emma, where um, that she, she's about to enter this marriage with Flap, and Shirley MacLaine says to Deborah Winger, you are not special enough to overcome a bad marriage. <laughs> yes, that's by great, great line. Just, yeah, it was an unbelievable line that a mother would say that to her child. But I guess that's you know also the protective instincts that she has, where she she does not want her to marry this uh, doofus of sorts. But then also Jeff Daniels. I think my dad might have even told me about this line many many years ago before I'd ever seen the movie. But where Jeff Daniels says to Deborah Winger, "You're my sweet ass gal." That's and right. She completely buys it, you know. Um, and I remember when I watched this movie for the first time, I was in uh, Jeremy Butler's film class, and I think that we were sort of going through uh, our little or our, our long melodrama phase, and he sort of showed this as a as an example. Um, but uh, I remember one of the lines that I, you know jumped out to me was when Aurora hugs Emma, and Emma says, "That's the first time I've stopped hugging first. I like that." You know, it's just a shame that she had to have that feeling yeah. that late in their relationship. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, uh, yeah, obviously I identify with a lot in this, especially the the uh, dick older brother that uh, this younger brother has to put up with because he says something. I can't remember what the younger kid says, but Tommy, the older brother, says, oh, no kidding. Is it tough being a genius? <laughs> I remember just being like, poor kid. I know exactly how he feels, but um, I also loved the doctor at. Oh, you know exactly birthday. how he feels. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but the 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 doctor at Aurora's birthday, who's trying to help her overcome aging, face facing aging head on in his special way, where he basically yells at her 
and tells her, you need to embrace it. You know, <laughs> he gets accosted by whomever he's with, but it's a great moment. Um, <laughs> some of these great, the, the, the scene where, uh, Jeff Daniels is, um, caught hitting on, uh, Janice, I guess, or whomever it is, uh, the, the young co-ed, I guess, or grad student he's having a relationship with when Deborah Winger catches him, that reveal of him carrying the baby, you know, on his stomach, he just turns around and he's carrying that baby. It's insane. And then he has to chase Deborah Winger and he finds her and they're fighting. <coughs> and all of these students are surrounding them and probably faculty members too are surrounding them. And who who has to be, it totally reminded me of Tim Matheson's otter character in Animal House. You just hear this voice in the background being a smart ass. And he says, Professor Horton, can I speak about my grade? <laughs> when, when he's dealing with this this domestic dispute uh, that's yeah, like going on. Yeah, like a catcaller in the background, yeah. Yeah, you know, and I, again, I talk about uh, these Woody Allen influences. There's part where after Deborah Wangers had lunch with her friend in New York and her, her other snobby friends, she comes out of there and she walks up to her friend and she says, in less than two hours, two of them told me that they'd had abortions. <laughs> It's just like I can't handle these New York people, right? You know, and there are other abortion jokes in this movie too. Like Shirley MacLaine says to Deborah Winger, "I know plenty of people who have had simple abortions." <laughs> when she's discouraging her from having her kids, and Deborah Winger just goes, "Simple," <laughs> you know, right? There's nothing simple about it. But now I wanted to ask you also before we uh, wrap up here, unless you're not ready to wrap up, um, <clears throat> does how much did uh, Deborah Winger? remind you of Zoe Deschanel. You know, that's a great that's a great comparison. I think that they're similar in their looks and even the way they talk, but and I think that I think both of them have an extreme and just uh, a, a very interesting um natural appeal about them. And I think that Deborah Winger uh took advantage of that way more than Zoe Deschanel has. And Deborah Winger, and we talk about this about comedic actors and actresses, the best ones are not scared to be the butt of jokes. And I think that Deborah Winger in this humiliates herself and she is the butt of so many different jokes in a way that Tina Fey sort of is now where she's this self deprecating woman and she's not scared to sort of face issues that women face uh, you know, physically and emotionally, and she faces them head on. And the thing about the, you know, that, that self-deprecating manner, is, it's, that is what is appealing to me uh, for, for an actor or an actress. And I think Zoe Deschanel, she's sort of in these roles where we all know that she's this uh, manic pixie dream girl or, or whatever, uh, these terms that have been coined for people like her in 500 Days of Summer or um, all, was it all the real girls yeah. that she was – and uh, you know, Elf and a few of these other movies where she is <coughs> the object of desire, and it should be easy for us to see that. And we, as men in the audience, uh, should immediately understand why men are attracted to her. And I just, uh, you know, I know that they're not the same actress, and it's unfair to compare the two. But I just see so much potential in Zoe Deschanel, and I think that it's to her advantage to be compared to someone like Deborah Winger. And Deborah Winger, look, she she was hot stuff back then, and she sort of fizzled out there and didn't make a lot. Of, it didn't make any movies for a long time. And I think the last thing that she was in was that I can remember was uh, Rachel getting married. She played Anne Hathaway's mom, and I think there was a pretty large gap between that 
whatever she did before, but she had so much promise. And I think that this and, and look, you can even look at stuff like an officer and a gentleman and an urban cowboy. And she was so appealing on screen. It's just a shame that that career could carry on. Well, you know, I, I, I mentioned that, um, that there was, uh, it's just sort of coincidental that you brought up Zoe Deschanel because her, her mother, Mary Jo Deschanel was, was in the right stuff in uh in 1983 and got got a lot of acclaim for it um but you know i I think i think the the comparison to deborah winger is a really uh is a really interesting one because i think the the biggest difference here and you brought it up um you know francesca has a big beef with this she brings it up all the time that the the real um big name actresses of today uh they they don't you know, they, they seem to be sort of so conditioned to looking cool all the time and looking like yeah. the dominant personality in mm-hmm. a, in a in any given situation that um, they never are willing to to give any real emotional vulnerability, which is of course the very um, you know that that is what acting is. If you're not showing real raw emotion and you're not willing to be vulnerable on screen then you're worthless as an actor i mean nobody wants to see a bunch of people act cool for two hours right so um you know or at least nobody wants to give an oscar to anybody acting cool for two hours so i mean i think i think um both deborah winger and shirley mclean but but you know it's it's probably more surprising with a younger actress to see that um they put themselves out there they're not afraid to look ridiculous in this movie and, you know, if you want people to believe you're a real human being, that's what you have to do. You have to look a little foolish and ridiculous because that's what real people actually do. Even real people who spend all day trying to act cool, uh, they fail most of the time and they end up looking stupid. So, uh, but, you know, I think it's probably cultural, Ben. I think, um, I think it's, I think the way that, um, the way that young women are, are, um, are taught and conditioned to act, you know, socially today, I think is probably a lot different than, you know, it's, well, I'll say this, it's probably a lot more uniform today. And I think people who grew up in Deborah Winger's era, for instance, probably had uh, more diversity of experience. They grew up in different families and different households, and they were taught that you can, you know, you can, some, some people grew up knowing you could be yourself and, and do, you know, act however you want to act. And, uh, I, I just think, um, you know, Francesca, Francesca would pick on people like Zoe Deschanel and, and Scarlett Johansson is a big one she gets after too, that there's just kind of, they all have the same personality. You know, they, they're, they're slightly different looking, but they're basically the same person, um, which is just a, uh, always endlessly cool, sexy female character who is never, um, you know, never out of control of their emotions, which is of course absurd and not like any real person any of us has ever met. Right. And that's boring. Yeah. You know, and it really is. But, um, and just to kind of get back (coughs) to, um, James L. Brooks here, um, he knocked it out of the park with his debut. And for me, he just never recovered. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm speaking on, broadcast news which a lot of people hold in very high regard it's a very popular movie and i saw it for the first time only recently there's a lot to like about it 
But again, I just had these same problems with these characters who were jerks and were too indecisive and um, were, were uh, you know, too privileged for their own good and unappealing for, you know, an audience member like me. And you talk about broadcast news, you talk about as good as it gets. You talk about Spanglish. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how, how much more unlikable you can get. And most recently with How Do You Know? And I just uh, struggled to even put that into the DVD player, knowing exactly <laughs> what I was going to get. But look, James L. Brooks is one of those guys. I mean, he made this film. He was um, directly involved with, uh, you know, he was a part of the creative process for The Simpsons. So he de- he deserves a lot of credit as a creative voice and as an artist. And a lot of people, a lot of these actors and filmmakers, they still refer to him as one of those people that they've always wanted to work with. Or I'll give up whatever I'm doing to work with James L. Brooks. Um, I just wish that he could uh, find, I don't know, this sort of drive to tell a story as truthful as this again, even this late in his career. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Well, Ben, uh, I think that's probably going to wrap it up for us, but uh, thank you so much for, for doing another one of these with me here. And, um, and I think we're probably going to, um, we're probably going to involve some of the other film nerds guys in whatever wrap up, uh, you know, final concluding podcast that we do in this series. And so, uh, I hope we can have you on for that as well, but, um, everybody please, uh, join us again, hopefully next week. Uh, we're going to be back on track here to, um, for, for the, the number one film of, uh, 1983, we will be finishing this, this bad boy off. And, uh, and then it's all about, retrospectives and, and uh, stuff like that and looking back at all, all these movies that I've spent so, so many hours watching. But, uh, Ben, uh, thanks again, and uh, I hope you can join us for whatever wrap-up podcast we do. Absolutely, and I can tell you that those of us who have helped you with this are also putting together and we're sort of uh, throwing in together for a pool to pay for the psychological evaluations <laughs> it's going to take for you to get over this little adventure or misadventure that you've taken. Yeah, I, I think um, you know my, uh, my my wife would probably really appreciate any help that she can get with that. So she's she's put the most in the pot so far. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure, Matt. <laughs>